Welcome to the Independent Artist Podcast, sponsored by the National Association of Independent Artists. Also sponsored by Zapplication. I'm Will Armstrong, and I'm a mixed media artist. I'm Douglas Sigworth, glassblower. Join us as we explore the topics that affect the lives and livelihoods of art show artists. Welcome back off the road or onto the road or wherever you are listening. Douglas, it's nice to see you through Zoom here. Man, it's been a crazy half month already. No kidding. You know, you just got in from St. Louis yesterday. I'm leaving first thing in the morning for Brookside, Kansas City. So I'm glad we've got a minute here to sit down and talk a little bit about shows and stuff. Yeah, my to-do list is still a mile long in spite of the fact that I canceled Brookside. So I will not see you there. I had some personal things kind of come up and and uh, all kind of come to a head there so i'm not going to be able to to make that show and oh. i hate pulling out last minute but that's what had to happen wow yeah that's a bummer i mean i understand disappointed won't see you there but i hope it's because you've been just having some stellar shows yeah i mean i've been having stellar shows but then also i got to be here for the kids and and uh trying to take that daryl thetford advice and and uh take care of business when i have to to live my life so it is it's about balance it is and um to be honest i got to get back into the doctor's office my balance is <laughs> this, oh this no foot of mine is uh, yeah i've got a, this foot of mine i've got a um i gotta take some care of that get back into the physical therapist's office too okay okay I don't know about you, but this long trip home in the van was killer for me. Getting home from Portland, it seemed never ending. Yeah, I that is a long, long drive. And I had to do the St. Louis to Santa Fe drive yeah. uh, just by myself. Uh, my wife was not with me and she wasn't going to be kind of the end game when I got home. I was coming home to an empty house. Mm-hmm. So uh, she's still up in Minnesota. That was brutal. I just felt like I was slogging through. And to be honest... St. Louis to Santa Fe is a crap drive. There is nothing good. I mean, you're driving through. Sorry if you live there, but Joplin, Missouri. By the way, (laughs) everyone, uh, four Joplin stars for Thai food does not mean four regular stars. You got (laughs) to imagine where you are. (laughs) I don't recommend the Thai food in, in Joplin, Missouri. But man, Joplin, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Amarillo, it's just sucks. All right, well, Eastern Montana and North Dakota, that was a pretty brutal uh, stretch as well. <laughs> I love Montana, though. I, I know what you're saying, but man, I, I can get into the zen of the Chris Dahlquist landscapes. Okay, yeah, and I can kind right. of be like, she's taught me to see some of the beauty in that because I just love her work. And I can sit back and be like... <gasps> Okay, get the Zen, but there there ain't no Zen about Jimmy John's and BP stations. True story. Man. <laughs> well, I was next to Brian and Louise. Brian uh, Proventure had a, a blood hmm. clot. One of his trips, I I don't know how long ago, he was telling me all about that. So I kept having this thought in my head: Okay, it's been two hours. I got to get out. I got to get moving. I got to walk around. I got to keep the blood flowing. I don't want to go down the road of what he described that he was gone through with getting a blood clot from sitting in the van for too long. Brutal. Yeah, they said that to me. My doctors were really worried when I went from Santa Fe up to Minnesota with a cast on. They were like, "Yeah, that's a real danger. Make sure you take an aspirin in the morning." And and of course, I overdid it and was like, "An aspirin? How about three? <laughs> that's uh-huh. got to be better." Yeah. But then you got to watch out your stomach lining and all this stuff. But I mean, we're not 
it, we're exactly 50, you and I, mm-hmm. and it, we're kind of catching into this, um, starting to hit the repercussions of a life well lived. That's for sure. I was taking an aspirin for a while there too. And then I got a, like a, a bleeder in my eye or something dumb like that. And they're like, it's because you took an aspirin. I'm like, oh my God. So now I'm off the aspirin thing. <laughs> I used to know, this is how my drives used to be. It's like, well, I knew it was time to stop uh, driving when I blew that same blood clot in my eye. <laughs> I like, it's like 13. I was like, well, yeah, there's the blood clot in my eye. Time to pull over. Pop bleed. It's just nasty. It's tough what we do to ourselves. I remember you telling me the story that you like to get out at the rest stops and do your jumping jacks. So every time I stop, there's always that guy off in the corner doing burpees and jumping jacks and (laughs) running around. look for him. (laughs) Yeah. Slade Cleaves has a a song, this this great song about traveling and doing music shows, diesel smoke and diner fries. We won't be young for long. (laughs) I love that. That's cool. Um, So before we left for these shows, we talked about the fencing issue. Both Portland and Cherry Creek were going to put fences around their show. Well, I wanted to give a report back on what happened out in Portland. They weren't doing it to to slow the crowds like for COVID or anything like that or doing timed entry or gate fees or anything. It was strictly for security reasons. So while the show was in operation, those sections of the gates were removed, but at night, Everything was locked down and the security was top notch. And after talking to some of the artists who run the thing, who are on the the committee, they said it went so well. They did all the legwork to get to this point with the fencing that they are going to do their best to make this a regular thing for the show. Okay, that's interesting. It's an interesting take on that. That's really cool to hear. Yeah. But now, how did the fencing go for you guys? Because you had said they were doing fencing more for the COVID rules. I know they struggled with what to do with getting the permits and things for Cherry Creek. And I I can't pretend to know what Amy Curley and Tara Burkell did to plan this event in a completely different spot. But I'll tell you this, first off, driving into the show and setting up our booths on Friday, we set up in the parking lot. It's all fenced off. To be honest, the friends of mine and I that, that got together, we were like pre-drowning our sorrows okay like oh my god this doesn't look like cherry creek it doesn't feel like cherry creek it's not the same weekend this could be a dog like we really were worried because it didn't feel like the show that we wanted it to be okay especially like the timed entry and all of the stuff that that like that was different we don't like things to be different as artists. No, we, we don't. want it to be the same, right. you know, like, what do I expect? And it's like, I expect the same thing. I've got to tell you that by 9 a.m. when that show opened, okay. it was Cherry Creek. Oh. I mean, the what they did, it was like, I know that they were, they were throwing a party and it's a different party and they didn't know exactly if people were going to show up. Yeah. People showed up. The line to get into that show, just to the parking of the show, was over a mile long. Not the people waiting outside, just the parking to park your vehicle is well over a mile. The people started flowing in at their timed entry points. They did such a good job getting people to come out and timing it to get in. It was so smooth. I can't even begin to thank the whole crew that put it on. I mean, I ran into them at the end of the day on Saturday and they were just like slumped over. (laughs) They were wiped. Like, holy shit, what just happened? Like they just rocked it. And the whole show was, 
super well done. So hats off to those guys. Well, when they can get the collectors there and in that kind of an enthusiasm, then we can do our magic. Yeah. I mean, if they can bring the horse to water, then we can... We can choke that water down their throats. <laughs> we can make them drink, baby. So I don't I don't know, man. I just was so worried. Yeah. And I'm always worried a little bit. It's like, uh, you're going into a big month. There was nothing to worry about. It, yeah. was, it was good times. I mean, I know, look, it doesn't always go awesome for everybody. But right. uh, they did what they had to do to get the people there to to put the art in their hands, and people were ready for it. That's great. Attendance was up at Pearl, too. I heard from Diane French in the meeting yesterday that Longs Park had a similar reaction. Big crowds showing up and lots of happy people there as well. My folks are big collectors of American craft. They always have been. And Longs Park is one of their shows uh, since they're East Coast people. Yeah. And they were really happy with it. I mean, they're vaccinated and they felt safe to get out. My dad is 81 and my mom is is soon to be 80. And it's, okay. it's just they were super excited to get out and they bought some artwork, too. And they said that the artists all seem to be really happy. So I had that report from my folks as well. Oh, sweet. That's cool. And also another person that saw that was great was our friend Deb, who was just on the show the week before. Oh, so, right. Uh, Deb, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, Deb Adelson. She was actually my next door neighbor at uh, St. Louis. Oh, so cool. she said she had a great Longs Park. It was a, a little independent artist reunion because I have David Bierstrom behind me and I had <laughs> Deb uh, next to me. I felt like they kind of grouped us together. It was cool to see those friends of the show. Awesome. Yeah, I was near uh, David in Portland and Kina was near me in, in there as well. So starting to see our friends and not just on our screens. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice to see people in person. Kina's booth looked awesome uh, as usual. I walked into Kina's booth as somebody was saying, oh, it's all so kind and friendly. And it's like, look a little closer. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, knife in the eye isn't all that cute. <laughs> it, it depends on what kind of knife. <laughs> um, when we got back, we really needed to hit the studio hard. So we've been putting some long days in the hot studio. What has been happening for us is our showcase pieces are gone. Okay. And it's hard to come back. After six weeks of not blowing, because the studio was under repair, like I talked about in the past podcast. And, you know, like uh, Amber and I talked about, a lot of glass blowing is drills and skills and just kind of getting back into the whole flow of things. But then these repairs, we actually changed some of our equipment. And those changes were enough, just how it's positioned, the height of the different things. It was enough to really throw us off. So there were a lot of days where we'd make a couple attempts at something before we would get what we were really trying to do. And it just, it was feeling rough. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I made fun of uh, how little I had to do to repair my studio the last time you were talking about it. But then I got back down to Santa Fe last week between uh, Cherry Creek and St. Louis. And I was trying to put the finishing touches on a painting that I'd started. And uh, I realized like, it's, it's funny, like what you get comfortable with versus uh, just a slight change. And with me, yeah. it's the humidity. And I, oh. I can't like, I'm up in Minnesota and my paint is flowing, like just butter and the stuff stays wet. And sometimes like if I put it on the acrylic on pretty thick, then it's not dry in 24 hours and I can go back with a wet rag and, and wash away. Cause I do a lot of like erasing with my work as, uh-huh. as well as painting. So I get a lot of like 
uh, form and shadow by with with erasing with my work. And, and and you can't like you put one brush stroke down in Santa Fe and it's so damn dry. It's not flowing over the texture of the matte medium. So, it, yeah, I, it's it's interesting to kind of live a different kind of life and share studios in different spots. Yeah. What you're describing also reminds me of when the seasons change and the temperature outside changes, it changes our working time. It changes everything about blowing glass. So yeah, there's adjustments to be made. And those adjustments are really hard when we're out at a show, back. And then you're under that pressure of, okay, I've got these big things that need to get made in a short amount of time. And when it isn't firing on all cylinders, the stress levels can go through the roof. Yeah, I'm totally with you. Those interruptions and whether it's something with your studio or the way your paint flows and anything can kind of trip you up. Uh, Speaking of tripping you up, I'm here in front of the computer. And when we get off of Zoom here, I'm going to start applying to some shows. Mm. I don't even know. Like I checked like like a panic check on Zap Mm -hmm. real quick before I left. I was like, do I have to do it before I leave? Like, you know, two o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Looking at this stuff. That's exactly what I do. I'll like pull up the favorites real quick and just quick do an application deadline list. It's like, okay, my shows aren't coming due for three days. I can go do something else. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So uh, what do you got coming up? What are you applying to? You know, uh, I'm getting the applications ready for Florida. Now we talked the last time you said you're considering cutting Florida out and yeah, I mean, I'm considering cutting Florida out just to try to take advantage of some of the Santa Fe open markets and uh, things just because I'm out here. Yeah. When I, you know, when I was in Richmond, Virginia, it was a no brainer to hop on 95 and go South, but uh, so far and driving all the way through Texas and Louisiana and to get there, I just don't know that it makes much sense for me anymore. I mean, in your case, definitely. And I'm hearing a lot of other reasons that folks are considering shying away from Florida and it's making me a little nervous. Yeah. You did a little uh, survey on, on that online, on some of the Facebook groups. How did that turn out? Well, you know, with being on the board for NAIA, we've all been talking to the different directors for different things. And it just happened to come my way that the applications are down. And there was a question of, well, why do you think they're down? And of course I had my own personal opinion, but that's just my own opinion. And then I thought, well, why don't I just put out a survey and see what what folks think about it? And I had thought, because where I was at, it was all about timing and schedules and getting to the next show and thinking, I've got three more weeks before I have to get this application in. But the results from the survey were pretty clear. There are a lot of people who are thinking of cutting out Florida. And that really concerns me because it is a major market for the roadshows. So what's the reasoning behind cutting out Florida? It seems to be threefold. One is COVID response, one is oversaturation in shows and the costs related to doing the shows and the lack of return that are coming, and then also just the creeping in of low-quality buy-sell at a lot of the the festivals and shows. Interesting. That sounds like a good reason to reach out to Howard Allen. A lot of his business relies on those Florida shows, so it'd be interesting to talk to him. Yeah, and, and then the other part to that was we all have learned how to hunker down and have less expenses and be comfortable with lower sales and having an equal profit margin. So there's people who are feeling like they can do better or fine on their own without the added expense. That's huge. It's a good reason not to do. You know, I mean, I can see also a lot of people going through and being like, 
um, waiting till the last minute because here you got to yeah. think it's kind of like it, uh, polling in the presidential race. It, yeah. It's like polling doesn't work because it cuts out all of the people that that are anti-polling. Yeah, and it seemed sure. like the anti-polling uh, people tend to, to be the anti-news people. Yeah. So you, you're cutting out this entire segment of the population of people who are anti-poll, anti-share, anti-news. I could also see you're, you're cutting out the the people who panic apply because if I'm a panic mm-hmm. applier, I'm not going to sit down and and fill out your survey because I'm panicking about everything else in my life. Yeah, I mean that makes total sense. It might be a bit of much ado about nothing, but it made me ponder the whole interconnectedness between our industry, how we make a living. What happens if the shows don't get the exhibitors to sign up? Are they, because of budget, going to start letting in lesser quality, buy, sell, production studios, but then that brings the quality of the show down? And that's a death spiral that's hard to recover from. It is. And I think, honestly, if they're not getting the quality applicants that they need, I think they should shrink the size of the show. And and that's where you get like our friend Stephen King. Mm -hmm. He's like, your booth fees are only 8% of my budget. And go to that model about funding your show. Because if you're not relying on the artists to fund the show, then you can be more imaginative about, okay, look, we typically have 200 artists at our show. Uh, We only had 150 people that we think are worthy. So we're going down to 150. And then the people that drop out, we're not going to let in anybody else. So I think that's a really cool way to go. I think smaller markets are better, a bigger slice of the pie for the people that are there. I wholeheartedly agree. Any of the shows that are in this position, take my advice, please (laughs) do this for the sake of the industry. Don't let your show go down that death spiral. Don't just sell real estate and fill the booth spots. Keep the show high quality. It may be a rough year uh, budget-wise, but then you'll still have people come back next year and the quality of the show will stay high. The people will buy and the artists will want to come back. (laughs) Don't put a spinning wheel of prizes next to a a fine art booth because nothing, nothing can kill your uh, sales worse, worse than a window barker that's sitting out there giving away beer koozies and keychains. step up and win a prize and get 10% off your triple insulated windows. That being said, I was next to a booth that they filled in St. Louis with a window hawker, but he was super quiet. He was told to be respectful ahead of time. And uh, Sarah Umloff asked, you know, if there's a problem with this guy, give me a call. You know, he's been told to be quiet. So as long as the focus is on the art and not the barkers and the, and the colored balloons. So (laughs) sorry, I got to quote a little Neil Young. (laughs) You never know where it's going. Never know what's going to pop up here. My wife says I have uh, musical Tourette's. So anytime anybody says any kind of line from a song, I'm going to fill in the rest of the thing. I'm not sure she enjoys that feature of of my personality. I appreciate that about you because it's familiar to me because I'll just be having a conversation with my dad and suddenly a Dylan lyric will be thrown out in the middle of the conversation. It's like he's a poet or something. He just wants to... I could talk to your dad. I'm a big Dylan guy. Yeah. <laughs> cool. You know, I'm coming out of Denver, which was a highly vaccinated city, yeah. going into Missouri, where St. Louis, I wasn't quite sure how Missouri was handling it. I know there's a spike. While I did not wear a mask, I was a little bit more nervous about being there. So I definitely got COVID tested before I am going to see my kids this afternoon. I actually went through the test just okay. to make sure that, you know, in spite of being vaccinated, what make sure I didn't pick up a Delta variant. But um, yeah, there's lots of things happening with with shows choosing different methods of keeping people safe. You know, 
in Portland, there's a mask mandate for even outdoors. So going back to our first episode, talking to David Oleski about doing a show while wearing a mask and all the people coming into your booth are wearing a mask, taking away your tell, that came front and center for me. And on top of it, I had a hard time even hearing some of the people. So sometimes the conversation flow back and forth was a little tricky. Like, am I actually responding to the question they're asking? And that's a huge deal. I was talking to our friend Jenny Herzog and Jenny is a lip reader mm-hmm. and she has no way of communicating. If someone's wearing a mask, she has no idea whether they're they're talking at all. Oh. So it's she's gonna have to be extra careful on even which shows she chooses to do. Yeah. But it just feels good to be out and doing it and being at the shows in spite of COVID. Uh just got an email from Belleville. I'm in their show, and they are requiring proof of vaccination or Uh, showing that you have a negative COVID test before the festival, which I'm totally in favor of. Fantastic. I'm I'm in favor of it too. Let's let's keep the uh, numbers going down. We have to get a get a hold of this damn thing. Did you say Armonk is doing the same? I can't remember if there are other festivals. Armonk backed off of their requirement for vaccination proof, I believe, but they are um, still uh, requiring everyone to be masked. Oh, they are okay. Uh, I don't know about the masking in Belleville, and I don't think, I mean, this is exhibitors who have to show there. Uh, I don't think it's like full stop, everyone who comes to the festival. Uh, But, you know, uh, I'm vaccinated, so it's not going to stop me from doing the show. It makes me feel good that if it makes the collectors who are coming to the show maybe feel a little bit more comfortable that they're putting measures in place that they will come and buy from us, then I have no qualms about it whatsoever. Sounds good to me. Hey, uh, I would be remiss if I did not mention something, Douglas. Uh, A couple of my favorite people on the circuit, they've been around for a long time, are actually retiring. And speaking of Armonk, it's going to be their last show. They're actually moving to Denver. And so I just have to say a huge thank you for everything that you've brought to this industry. Uh, Hetty and Norman Metzger are just two of the kindest, sweetest people I think that I I know on the circuit. And it's, I'm really going to miss those guys. I'm going to miss their presence. And I just wanted to say congratulations to them for retiring while they're, they're healthy and happy and ready to get out there and live some life. So uh, just hats off to them and, and just sending all the love and success in their retirement that I could possibly muster. I just, I could not think more highly of them. That's great news. I hope you guys enjoy your retirement. Awesome. Man, that gets us to the crux of the show. Douglas, we have a big personality on this week. You sat down with our good friend, Eric Lee. Uh, He is still a working artist, but has kind of retired from most of the art shows that he used to do. But he has some insight and some guidance into that. And I just, I was fascinated when I sat down and listened to the talk. And I can't wait to get on into it. All right, let's get right into this interview with Eric Lee. This episode of the Independent Artist Podcast is brought to you by Zap the digital application service where artists and art festivals connect. You know, Will, I started applying last week for next season's art shows in Florida. And I just really love that with Zapplication, we can categorize our shows by favorites. And then I can go in and sort those favorites by application deadline. So I never miss an application to one of my favorite shows. It's true. It has lots of different options, lots of different add-ons and tags that we can use. And I never seem to have enough time. I mean, I just got home from the Pearl. I got to get back in 
the studio, get pieces made, and then there's applications coming too. I'm so busy with all of the other hats that I wear to go on to other websites to apply to shows. To be honest, I don't even do it. I only go to Zap. Yeah. And basically, if I don't have to think about it, then I'm a happy man. Welcome to the podcast today, Eric Lee. Eric started his career in architecture. This industry taught him to think big and innovate. As an independent artist, Eric backpaints on glass panels, not only as wall art, but as functional pieces like tables and door panels as well. Eric views his work as a means to bring people together of diverse backgrounds and experiences. He is very generous and open with his knowledge, and I'm excited to spend some time with him today on the podcast. Hey, Eric, welcome to the Independent Artist Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the opportunity. So you're in Colorado? Yep, I'm in uh, right about uh, 20 minutes outside of Glenwood. Is that by Denver? Almost three and a half hours and change from Denver. It's closer to Aspen, about, Mm. about 45 minutes from Aspen. Now, you were in Chicago for the longest time, weren't you? I was in Chicago for 15 years. Okay, and what made you make the move out to to Colorado? Well, there was an interim, you know, before Colorado, before uh, after Chicago, and before Colorado, I lived in Austin for five years. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. But my my first forty two years were in in New York, so in Brooklyn. Yeah, that's one of the things you sign papers when you're going to leave Brooklyn that uh, <laughs> that you always admit that you were from there. So when everyone says I still stay from Brooklyn, no matter how long I've lived anywhere else. All right. Well, I guess that's one of those things that uh, stays with you anyway. It's uh, imprinted in in who you are. Absolutely. New York. New York is a pretty uh, uh, powerful place in terms of uh, resonating in your personality. Cool. Yeah, it's great to see you. It seems like it's been quite a while, of course, with COVID. But before that, I don't think I've seen you out at the road shows for a couple of years. Is that true? Uh, about five. Five. In fact, I I was on the the circuit for about. Uh, 10 or 12 years, and then uh, maybe a little longer. And uh, I started about four or five years in, I started planning my exit. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, Well, the focus of this podcast is really on a professional independent artist, people who represent themselves and represent their work, and that can take on any kind of form. It can be selling through art shows or galleries or representing yourself through your website, that sort of thing. So um, I do find your story really interesting and I'm really glad you could join um, us today and we can talk a little bit about it. Can you tell me about the career that you had before becoming an independent artist? Well, it was, uh, it was really pretty much, I went from a left brainer to a right brainer. Um, Ah. I, I wrote contract documents to build large commercial and residential buildings. I was a specification writer for about 15 years. Okay. And the, the difference was um, pretty dramatic. A specification is basically the words that goes along with it that go along with a set of drawings. Okay. And so I didn't actually draft or did nothing graphic in architecture, but I would interpret drawings and complement them with the quality of materials and workmanship. I would define that in a specification, and it was really a very rewarding career. I worked on a tremendous amount of high end work. Okay. Were these were these residential, commercial? What type of projects uh, were you working on? Residential, commercial, institutional. Um, I worked on everything from the renovation of Carnegie Hall mm-hmm. to Jeffrey Katzenberg's house in Malibu to Sony's headquarters in New York to projects in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait 
all over the board. The only building type I didn't work on, I would say, is a stadium. Wow. I mean, the scale of the projects you worked on sounds just huge. Yeah, I'd say over over the years of my career, it was about a billion and a half dollars worth of construction. So it was it was pretty substantial. I guess the, the connection to art was that it you're busy executing someone else's aesthetic. Okay. So you're you're basically trying to have them uh, have their projects go smoothly. Uh, the more concisely and, and consistently you describe what their their goals are in, in terms of materials and workmanship, the better the project flows. So unbeknownst to me, I was developing my own aesthetic because you you can't help but decide, oh, I like this, I don't like this, you know, spatially or color-wise. And mm-hmm. uh, since I worked with some of the leading architects and designers in the world, I was having exposure to um, a real wide range of visions, of architectural visions. Mm-hmm. And I think that informed my, my painting in later years. Ah, that makes sense. I mean, in a totally different realm, our children have grown up on the road at art shows and the stuff that just gets imprinted into their, you know, exposure makes them natural connoisseurs of art, you know, being artists. And I'm sure that that working in that field and being exposed to these high end projects and working in that way, you, you acquire that appreciation and that understanding. That's absolutely true what you're saying. And and you also listen a lot. You understand the rationalizations of of people as to why they did certain things. And, Mm -hmm. It has a sculptural quality to it because a lot of the uh, high-end art has a use of volume and, and geometry and that sort of thing. So, I, I, like I say, unbeknownst to me, I was learning from some of the world-class people in terms of aesthetic. Wow. And so I had no clue that I would ever end up doing anything remotely, directly artistic. Mm-hmm. And it just it just took a different path than I had planned. But it's a good thing. It's crazy how how every little stepping stone leads us to the next thing. And that was definitely the groundwork for you mm-hmm. to where you are now. Right. Yeah, it's uh, well, I was going to say is in terms of the, being the groundwork, after about 10 or 12, 13 years in that field, my uh, then wife, Pam, okay. suggested that I was an artist. And I said that I wasn't. My, my point was that I wasn't an artist that uh, I was a technical person, that I was a word maven. Okay. Um, and so I, I literally started painting to prove that I'm not an artist. So you went out and became an artist in spite of that statement. You wanted to prove her wrong? Well, yeah, absolutely. In fact, it was, it, was, it was sort of an odd way that it happened. I went into the garage and picked up a piece of glass to paint on. And, and the reason I used glass instead of canvas or board was I knew I was had a tendency to be meticulous. Okay. And I didn't want to have my desire to get it right get in the way of doing it freely. So I knew that glass, I could wipe it off and start over so I wouldn't be inhibited. Oh, I see. So you could change your direction at any point. You didn't feel like you were committed to a certain path with that design. Absolutely. I could wipe it off and start over. I wouldn't be fixated on making a mistake. And so it it gave me freedom. Ah, okay. And then I did the first piece and I went inside and showed her and she liked it. And I said, damn, um, <laughs> because then I, and then I thought I better really try. And the second piece I actually liked myself. So I was off to the races. And uh, so I started painting exclusively on glass for the first, I guess, eight or nine years or so of my career. So when you first went out to play with paint and glass, mm-hmm. had you had any experience with 
painting aesthetically other than in a construction setting kind of thing? Have you ever had any experience with painting? None whatsoever. It was a completely new experience. Uh, but I dove right in because uh, I was a stay-at-home dad. Uh-huh. I painted six or seven hours a day, six or seven days a week when I first started. So you felt that initial inspiration and then just kind of ran with it and just experimented. And, yeah, oh, absolutely. And you're self-taught. So you yeah. you let the materials inform your design and your style and what you like. Absolutely. Truly. Yeah. It's uh, the, the tricky thing about painting on glass that was, was different and why it took so much time each day to paint was on canvas, you see what you're creating as it, as it evolves. With glass, since you're painting on the reverse side, the back side of it, you don't see, literally, you can't see how it's turning out. You have to have a feel for it. Let it dry, turn it over, see how it's going, and then flip it back over and react. So it was almost the equivalent of painting blind or painting remotely. Mm-hmm. And um, and so there was a lot of, there was a big learning curve because I had no one that, that I could go to for advice. I knew no one that was doing the, the medium the way that I was. And also with the way you're applying the layers, you're applying it backwards in a sense. You're doing the foreground and then working to the background. And that's opposite to how like when we're blowing glass, um, working with molten layers, we're working from the, you know, the inside out. Right. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a funny thing. You, you note that I, I refer to my work as back painted, not reverse painting. Mm. The process you described is really closer to reverse painting uh. because then you do foreground first, then background. So there's a linear nature to it. When you're back painting as abstract, there's more blending mm. and you have to see which colors are going to migrate through which. And it's less systematic in that way. It's more like knowing how paint's going to react and its edges. Uh, by edges, I mean the uh, use of dry time. When I first started painting, I used to use an egg timer because I had a tendency to want to keep working something, keep moving it around. And, okay. and if you paint with the same colors too long, they eventually become mud. Yeah, right. Because you just you just keep working it. So I would literally set an egg timer so I'd step away and come back after it dried for a amount of time. Now the egg timer is in my head, so I know how long to step away. So you don't start building another layer when it's not dried enough. It's 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 just like mixing all the wet paint. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the dry time varies. If you want a crisp line, you let it dry completely. Mm-hmm. If you want a subtle transition and the colors to blend, there's a different amount of time that you let it. If you want it to mix thoroughly, you, you can put the new layer of paint on quickly. So depending on the effect you want, the uh, that guides the amount of time, determines the amount of time that you're going to wait between layers. Okay. So this time period where you were spending full days painting, did you get out of your previous career altogether? Or was this kind of a, a period of, you know, one foot on one step and one foot on the other? No, there was there was no case where it was foot in each world. I was I had been out of architecture and construction for several years and I leapt in full time, full, full blast. And it, the response was so strong the first time I started doing art shows and I, I owe so much to art shows mm-hmm. that I knew that it was going to, if I could just process it and, and figure it out, that it would be a good career. Mm-hmm. So I, I dove completely headfirst into this. So your first opportunity of selling your work was at the out, outdoor festivals and shows? Yes, it was. It was, uh, and, and, and that was a gift. Uh, the, the shows were were so wonderful in terms of exposure to other people's aesthetic and other people's art, the community 
of artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a funny story, actually, because my first show I ever did was uh, an Amder show mm-hmm. in, uh, I can't remember, it was in near Chicago. I can't remember which which town it was. But I, I didn't know how to set up a tent or a booth. And and my entire booth came crashing down. Oh. And I met a lot of artists. It was almost like a musician that breaks their guitar on, on stage. Everyone heard the crash of the glass. The gl- and they came and running. And they came running. Uh-huh. And they came running to help. And it was such a community feeling that, uh, that I made a number of friends. One of my good friends, Michael McKee, I met him there. And uh, we became fast friends. We've been friends for now 20 years or so. But the shows were a rigorous training in terms of marketing and what goes into the the work aspect of, of the art. And it's the, that one-on-one with, with the client, with the person who's going to yes. own our work and live with it. And it's vital feedback to see the reactions and, you know, people give their honest opinions and it is a, it's a quick learning curve on how your work is being received. Yeah, absolutely. And you, and you feed off of that. I used to tell that after I'd been in the, the industry for a while, I would tell young artists that it's about your art, but it's also about your relationship with your people that buy your art, your mm-hmm. customers, your clients, your your patrons. Yeah, um, and that that the difference between success and failure is often whether or not you step up and and communicate. When you first showed up at an art fair, did you ever show up in a just a ten by ten, or were you always that big presence, that double tall booth on the street? I started out as a very small booth, I guess for the, well, 10 by 10, which mm-hmm. feels very small once I started going larger with the 10, 10 by 20 mm-hmm. and, and larger. In fact, I started out with a single booth, but the volume of work that uh, I wanted to display, I needed a bigger presence. So that's why I went to the 10 by 20. What I would say is that what took me the next level, even past the 10 by 20 was there were shows where you could actually get an island. Mm-hmm. So you'd have a 10 by 20. And then you'd have two co- double corners so you could have work on the inside as well as the whole perimeter of your tent. Mm-hmm. And that allowed me to, to really have a, uh, an impact and have the work to have an impact and also give room for the work to breathe. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have everything right on top of each other, for me, it doesn't, it doesn't give me the, the sense of individuality to the pieces. Right. Uh, your first pieces that you were showing, um, were they small in nature and then just grew in size over time? Uh, yeah, I, I, it's funny how one perceives large. Uh, yeah. I remember when I first started, I was a lot of, I did a lot of 12 by 36 and 36 by 48. I considered my large pieces. Then eventually my large pieces became 30 by 60 or 36 by mm-hmm. 60 and then 36 by 72. So it grew as time. And I, I find, I find it easier to paint larger than, than small mm-hmm. to put as much work into a small piece and have as much interest is tough. Mm-hmm. The smaller the piece, the more difficult it was to express myself in a flowing way because the paint flows on glass a little differently mm-hmm. than it does on canvas. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it became expansive. So soon my pieces got up to now my, I do quite a few pieces that are four foot by five foot. And I'm actually about to start um, a diptych of two 63 inch by hundred inch pieces. Mm-hmm. So it'll be about 10 feet by a little over seven feet. Right. What I'm focusing on the the size is it seemed to me, you know, I've been in the business at road shows since, you know, right around 2000. And it seemed like, uh, I don't know, 2007, maybe right around the crash. It seemed like before that point, a lot of us artists out on the street, our market was for the 
upper middle class or middle class, the people who would want to spend 500 bucks to $1,000 felt like a splurge that they would save up for to put a piece on their mantle or hang over a couch or whatever. But when that crash happened and the middle class started to disappear, it seemed like artists were now going for that upper echelon where money was not a concern. And you seem to be able to design and have a market and sell for those really high-end clients. I started uh, working with those clients even before the crash. I had a lot of response from corporate clients. Mm -hmm. Early in my career, I started working with hospitals Mm -hmm. and lobbies for for residential commercial buildings. So I I guess the best way to to describe it was when people asked me, even when the crash happened, why you don't lower your prices and go to smaller work. And my response was essentially that if someone's driving a mid-range Beamer, they may be strapped. They may be just to the point where they're getting their bills paid, Mm -hmm. but someone driving a Bentley doesn't have a car payment. Mm. And so, you know, you find that people of of means seem to always have enough disposable income to purchase art. And, And actually, the other thing I was thinking about that is People take it more seriously when it's significant in terms of its its size and, and actually its cost as well. Mm-hmm. You don't try and price yourself out, but you do have to be uh, be considered a serious artist, not just a, a person who's dabbling. There you go. Yeah. And in your presentation, when you went big, when you show up and put a couch in the middle of your design room as opposed to an art fair tent, It gives that impression. The high-end collector has to walk up and say, I can visualize this in my space as opposed to like I'm looking at it in a tent. Absolutely. And along those lines, to follow up on your point, they remember your tent. Mm. So they'll walk around, see 200 other artists, but they remember the one with the leather couch and with the tables in it and the flowers and that type of thing. It's a branding Mm. issue, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that's a big, big part of what... I crafted my career around is having my work be memorable. Mm. So as an artist and also the work itself to be memorable, the idea of interacting with clients so that, that you make a connection is it goes a long way toward, uh, toward having a successful career. I believe. I also think uh, along the same lines of being memorable is nobody else is doing what you're doing, which obviously adds to the memorability of it, but it's not like, someone walks by and is like, well, I've seen this done, even if it's a different look or a different style, what you're doing is one of a kind unique in its field. It is a big factor and was a big factor in my, the growth of my career. Another one was that I did functional work as well. My tables, my bowls, every sort of furniture item I do from coffee tables Mm to dining room tables to wall applications and doors and and now refrigerators Mm -hmm. fronts for Sub-Zero. They are expanding your marketplace and and how you're seen. So people tend to think of your work as something that that they can have more than one piece of. I have a number of clients, probably, oh, 20, 25 or or more that have a dozen or more pieces Mm -hmm. um, because they, they work in different ways. Everything from, as I say, functional pieces to wall art. So across, like across different applications, like they might have a piece hanging on the wall, but then their dining room table might be one of your pieces or. Absolutely. That, that is so much of a factor in, in how successful one is, is your ability to ride the, uh, the waves of, of what people are considering for art. Okay. So this, this customer base we're talking about, 
do they actually shop for themselves or do they hire a designer or somebody to kind of scout you and then they bring your designs to the client? Are you still having that one-on-one connection with the end game buyer? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because they're a cornerstone of the way I viewed my career was to have multiple revenue streams. Mm-hmm. By that, I mean not having complete dependence on art shows or galleries or designers or, or work that's been sold through other institutions like showrooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, because there'd be peaks and valleys in each area. Of, For sure. And so if, if shows weren't were letting off, I would have interior designers I would be able to tap into. And if, if interior designers may have been uh, a little quiet for a while, I would work with art consultants. And that's I did a lot of work with hospitals and, and commercial interiors that way. It's a real mix of where my client base comes from. Mm-hmm. Some are directly from interior designers. It, it's a tricky thing working with interiors people, though I do enjoy it. And it's my previous career. So I, I speak their language. I can lead, read a set of drawings. So I can make suggestions. Yeah. But it's a tricky thing because you're one removed from the client. What yeah. the client requests and what the uh, designer perceives that to be and how they transmit that information to you may be miles apart. And to me, the client is ultimately who I'm painting for or working with. Mm. So the idea is to interpret what the designer says. And and if ever possible, I, I try and avoid not having contact with the client. Right. I, I always try and, and find a way to speak directly to see how closely the designer is interpreting what the client is looking for. I think you're very responsive and intuitive, and you can read that client. You have a different understanding level than maybe what the designer is, you know, because they don't make the work. They just are shopping for the work. And their their goal is often to not so much to increase their or enhance their career. It's to to promote their vision. Mm-hmm. And and I believe that the person that's going to live with the work is the one that should be governing the the eventual product, how it turns out, because the designer will be on to another project mm-hmm. and the, the person waking up every day looking at the work is the one that, that the art is literally for. I've had collectors walk into the booth, love the work, start talking about it, take photos of it. They message it to the designer and they're like, oh, sorry, the designer doesn't like it, but they liked it. I'm thinking to myself, well, you are the end game. You get to make the decision. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's so, that is so true. <laughs> when it looks like that and it looks like you may have already lost the sale. Yeah. But I, I I pull out all stops at that point. I'll say it straight out. Who pays the mortgage? There you go. And, and because the sales already gone and and I've I've saved a number of sales like that. Mm-hmm. I, and I'll, or I'll ask to speak to the designer. I think sometimes it becomes about ego. Yeah. Like the designer didn't find it for them. <laughs> right. Right. Not invented here. Syndrome. NIH. Yep. Or maybe they're somehow getting edged out of a commission because they found it and they're they're going to work on pricing with the artist. If the customer buys it outright, then they're kind of cut out of it. Well, it's funny that you mentioned about uh, the pricing and, and designer percentages. When I do speak to the, the designer, I let them know that not only do I enjoy working with, with designers, even mm-hmm. though that's not always the case, it's it's always my hope and my, my goal. Mm-hmm but that I make sure that if their average or what they're looking for is a 10% designer uh, consideration, I try and stay at about 20%. Mm -hmm. And it may be leaving money on the table that I might have, 
but the relationship with a good designer who really loves your work, the relationship is more valuable than that one client. Mm. I keep the client in mind, the happiness of the client in mind, but I also realize that the designer may result in 15 other clients. Yeah, you are limited in what you can go out and bring back for yourself for collectors. But if you have multiple designers that are bringing people to you, that that 20% is worth it. And the thing that goes along with that, even if the the designer isn't positive about what you're doing for the client, when the client is happy, they're happy to take credit for it. Mm -hmm. So if you make the designer look good or the, the, whomever it is, that's advising the client look like they had wisdom and and insight, then, then that's a, a win for them and a win for you. Um, I don't know if you are aware of your influence, uh, you among others. Uh, your name was invoked in Daryl Thetford's interview with Will. Daryl brought up you and Michael McKee, how you guys started putting your work out there on a bigger scale and how that affected Daryl. That affected how Daryl presented his work. And I'm hearing that from a number of other artists, too, that that, that is kind of growing and building on the artist community at the road shows. Daryl's a good friend. I love him dearly. And Michael is as well. I remember the show where Daryl and I had our come to Jesus moment yeah. conversation about, <laughs> about, about art and selling, because th- that show was kind of off the hook. It was at Bayou City. I had an island, a double booth, and work all the way around the end. And I sold 54 pieces at that show. Oh. And I was right across this way from Daryl. It, it was a real pivotal point in my career, aside from realizing how much volume or how much work could sell. Uh, you make a decision whether or not you share why it's working for you. Mm-hmm. And you don't come from a point of scarcity. Mm-hmm. So, so Daryl asked what was going on. It was kind of evident that I was having a great show. And, and we talked at, at length about that. And a lot of the things we're talking about here, I, I discussed with Daryl. And I looked at his work and, and I saw incredible talent, which was obvious to anyone looking at it. But I think that the, the goal of creating a, a name for yourself and a brand and, and a signature aspect to it was something that I really clicked with me. Mm-hmm. And other artists that, that I've learned from taught me that you don't withhold. You don't act as though a sale that you don't make that someone else makes next to you came from you. It, it's you just share whatever you've learned and and it has to be a, a community thing. Mm-hmm. And so I've given a lot, I feel, to to those that are young artists and coming up. But I've also learned from from people that were just starting out. So it, it's been a great, great relationship. There's probably about a dozen or so artists that I, I'd say I've I've learned the most from Daryl. He uh, me as one of the people, but I, I've learned a tremendous amount from how his career has progressed as well. Uh, this uh, topic that you're talking about, about, you know, fighting the urge of scarcity and being open and sharing, you know, when it's appropriate, brings me back to an uh, interview I had with Chris Dahlquist. And she talks about how by building each other up as artists and sharing what we know, kind of like what we're doing here on the podcast. Mm-hmm it actually increases the market and the desirability for art and artists. So it actually exponentially grows on itself. It's not like it's a limited bucket of funds that are going to be circulated and we all have to fight for the crumbs. Well said. The way I put it early in my career was that I'd rather be next to 
a great artist than someone that I would refer to as walnut and pipe cleaner art, mm. because the, the strong artists bring the strong clients, the good clients. Mm. And I think the best shows are shows that are curated well. Mm. And so that the clients are there and they have to choose. I, I love it when people are stuck between uh, buying one of my pieces and one of Michael's or Daryl's that, that works for me. But if you're next to someone is basically just splattering paint and taking an easy way out. And, and I would, you know, it's very subjective, but consider a, a serious artist. It makes it harder to make a sale because you're, you're known by the company you keep. So tell me about when you were learning the ropes, mm-hmm. creating your artwork and being self-taught, did you have to find a confidence in yourself or have you just always just kind of been that person who just knows what you like and knows what you don't like and are just able to follow a real direct path? It, it, it's not a clear cut thing. Mm-hmm. When I hit the scene my first year, I did really well. I had a, had a great first year out the gate and I sold quite a bit of work. And then I, after the second year, I looked back at my old work and I thought, wow, I was a hack. I was just not, <laughs> I look at that stuff and I how the hell did that sell? And I actually went back to a number of clients that I'd become friends with because I developed friendships with quite a few clients. Uh, and that's really served me well over the year. I just had people that have bought uh, work from me uh, seven or eight or 10 years ago and their children are now buying work from me. Oh. But but when it all started, I, I went back and I'd buy work back from clients or I traded. <laughs> I said, I'll give you a bigger piece. I can't have that piece out there on the wall because I just I was aghast at, at what I thought was good and what they thought was good. Wow. So uh, so I make you have confidence, but you also have to be realistic about it. Yeah. Whether or not, you know, whether or not you're just banging the drum or, or, or you're actually playing the drums. OK, that's pretty cool. I love it. Yeah. Your work with uh, designers, did that come from the, the road shows? Does that, did it start there and it kind of was just, you had exposure to all different sorts and you've worked those different channels? I, it did come from it. There's a process that I shared with other artists and I, I'd love to, to mention here mm-hmm. is a lot of people look at the shows as the end all be all. It seems uh, you, you sell to the clients that are there and you move on to the next show. You that you've got scheduled. But for me, I always try and dig deeper. I would ask of a client, what is it you do when you're not at an art show? You know, what's your, what's your regular gig? And you'd find someone that's an attorney or someone that's a physician or someone that's a, an academic. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything about their field or you've had clients in those fields, I find a lot of, of people that are into abstract or, or mind workers or lawyers and doctors and, and, and people who are thinkers mm. i would always mind m-i-n-e mind the the client say well you know he's, he's head of a hospital president of a hospital or, or a surgeon and i would i would find a way into that institution so i'd have stuff in their home but i'd say if, if who would i speak with at your at your firm that would be interested in purchasing corporate work or is it possible that you have a donation or a, a charity that you you're uh, interested in working with because i try and do try and donate to to causes that I believe in. And so basically I don't look at any client as just a one-shot sale. In mm-hmm. fact, I had a show Buffalo Grove at uh, Amy Amder's shows. One of the clients that I got through that was a senior VP at a car dealership, a BMW dealership, and they ended up buying 57 pieces. Mm. So that that could have either been one sale or or actually fifty seven pieces for that dealership and another twenty some odd 
for for a sister dealership of theirs. So mm-hmm. I I think you sell yourself short if you don't see what's underneath the the initial sale. Do you think if artists define their customer as just being that couple looking for a piece to hang in their home, that they aren't really prepared for the client who's looking for a hospital lobby or a boardroom or something like that, that that we need to plan for that ahead of time and know how we would interact with those kinds of people? A hundred percent. It's realizing that there are layers to everyone along those lines take every client seriously you can't go by it on a superficial level as to assuming because someone comes up and is slightly unkempt that Mm -hmm. that they don't have the ability to purchase art but also not just with the sale in mind one of my favorite shows and one of my favorite memories of of being on the circuit was a show in belleville and at that show there was a homeless person that really loved some of my work and there was also a I, i sold work to a person that was a billionaire and they love the same work that to me that was the that the epitome of a compliment that it spoke to them not because of where they were in their station in life but it spoke to them because of what it how it resonated within them and that's what i seek is i love the fact that my youngest client was nine years old given money to spend by their parent out in Sausalito, and my oldest client was in her 90s I don't want to have demographics define my work. It's not male or female. It's not straight or gay. It's not uh, urban or rural. The idea is to speak to the music within them. In fact, that's a, a way that I refer to my abstract work is it's uh, we're using musical metaphors. Uh, it's about transitions and segues in color is much like the way I look at at color used in my paintings. I do notice from your work a lot of use of contrast. Yeah. Is that part of that? Is that to create an effect? Tell me about that a little bit. Contrast, it's the it's the edges that make that make the piece. It's the colors, the colors matter, but it's how the colors touch. Mm-hmm. I'd say that that make the biggest difference. It's again using the music analogy. If uh, someone's disc jockeying, someone's DJing and and one song ends on a note and the next one picks up, people keep dancing. If a song transitions smoothly and glides into the next song, people keep dancing. If it's a jarring or awkward transition, people sit down. And so the colors matter and contrast matters, but uh, sometimes you want it to be ethereal like a cloud shift, and sometimes you want it to be like the way mountains look on the edge of the, of the sky. Is there a crisp line. So contrast and the lack of contrast are, are two things that I think are important and, and how you play with the, with the two ways of looking at, at the aesthetic. I like what you said about how you have conversations with the, with the person who's interested in your work on a broad scale. It's maybe to sell a single piece. It may be to sell multiple pieces. So it sounds like you're highly engaged if you have a receptive person there in front of your work, you're going to engage with them and find out where their head is at. Because all of those things go into how, if especially if you're going to do a commission, those things have a lot to do with hitting the mark. The idea of actually talking about medicine when you're talking with a doctor, not making it all about you. It's a partnership. We're, we're creating this together, how it speaks speaks to them or how the work you're going to do for them speaks to them. It goes a long way toward developing an ongoing relationship. Cool. Uh, I've read your Forbes article about 
thinking outside the box, but choosing to work inside the box when it's appropriate and knowing where the lines are. Can you talk about what that means exactly? Well, I, I think that, and this is always a, a difficult thing for me to accept. For a while, while I was still doing shows, I'd find that some shows were, if it were edgy, it was considered significant. It, it didn't have to be good, disturbing even. It might be considered significant. And I... I think that just being outside and edgy isn't necessarily a good thing. It can be, but if if that's all you've got going for you, then then that's limiting. So when I refer to being inside, going inside and outside the boxes, if you know the parameters that the game is played by, you know what's how you can use the tools that that are classic and eternal, if it, as it were, speak to to color transition and form and balance and that sort of thing, and you'll know how to break the rules. So. Keeping your mind on what everyone's doing allows you to figure out how to push the envelope. If you play it completely safe, then you get what everyone else gets. And if you completely rewrite the book every time you paint, there's something to be said for that. But you also don't transition people that are capable of seeing your work into understanding it. So you're referring to being inside and outside the box, re- referring to design techniques or how you paint your work is that what you're saying yeah it's look at someone like rothko that was one Mm -hmm. of my early influences i I liked his geometry i liked his color theory but i i didn't want to be emulating his work it was just an influence Mm -hmm. so when early in my career when i did work that was had had similarities to his approach to color I wanted to add intricacy to the fields of color field. I used his parameters and then stretched it in and give it my own flavor, as it were. It, it's, a, it's sort of almost a lifestyle thing. Knowing the way that people assume that a painting will look, it allows you to tweak it in certain places and give surprise because an element of surprise is something that is stimulating and it's like spice. You've got, you've got the flavor, but then you've got spice. And if it's all spice, then it's, it's overpowering and overwhelming. If it's, if it's just bland, then it's not effective. So the idea is to have to figure out different ways to uh, season your food. Well, I took that, and I guess maybe this is an extension of what you're saying, but what I interpreted you meaning by that was how you are taking your artwork and using it in ways like on door panels and refrigerator fronts. And I mean, that to me is outside the box. Oh, I would agree. I would agree with that. When, when the way that my refrigerator, I have a really great relationship with Sub-Zero. And the yeah. way that that began was some of my work was bought at a gallery in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sub-Zero is up near there and bought for, for a showroom in New York City. And uh, it was wall art. I met at the Madison show, I met uh, the architect that had selected the work and chosen it for that. Once I'd heard about the sale there, I started, my mind started swirling about how it might be used uh, in panels. And so I proposed it to him. He liked the idea and brought the idea to Sub-Zero. So my first project with Sub-Zero was to do a refrigerator front in their Dallas showroom. That grew into, now I've done seven showrooms. Uh, New York, uh, Dallas, Houston, Costa Mesa, which is L.A., Charlotte, and I can't remember a couple of others. And yeah. I, I one just outside of Boston now. And it, it developed into a real ongoing relationship. 
And what that allowed me to have is a steady corporate client. And what's really cool about them as a client, this is one of those outside the box things, is yeah. they purchase the work outright and then take my cards and hand them to their clients. So they, I've had numerous clients that have come through those showrooms that are have bought things other than refrigerator panels. So they'd uh, accessorize to match the refrigerator. They or, would have. <laughs> or not even do the refrigerator. It's they, they oh, would basically... Okay. They would actually just, they'd make their way to my site and we'd end up doing anything from a dining room table to large uh, work in, in one or two of their homes, uh, wow. wall art. So it, it, it's a, worked out into a really strong um, ongoing relationship. And I, I do quite a few projects for their clients. And also someone that's buying a $15,000 refrigerator yeah. uh, and wants something unique to make it stand out from the neighbor's $15,000 refrigerator is usually a person that is well healed and capable of, of considering other work. Mm. Uh, so you came up with this idea about the refrigerator fronts. This wasn't someone approached you and said, have you ever considered doing this? This was you and you found a way to get it out there and, yes. and it just spread from there. Yes. And now I've, I've got a new project that I'm working on. I want to do uh, the inside of elevator cabs so oh. that basically you ride up and down inside the artwork. I've been toying with that for a while and I've, I've got some ideas about how to do that. But yeah, that's my, I'm looking at, at a couple of mm -hmm. hotel chains uh, to do that. I've done work with Ritz Carlton and Four Seasons and now I'm pursuing W Hotels and some others in Marriott to do just that sort of thing. So this work that you did initially with, with architecture, that really does it is present in your current mindset and how to market and sell your work. It sounds like it sounds like it's, it's like in the here and now, like how you can utilize your work in that kind of an environment. Very, very much so. Sometimes I, I initiate the idea and sometimes uh, the, the client does. In fact, I just did a project in Baton Rouge where I'm doing some exterior work uh, at, at a fountain and I found a really large home and some work on the inside of the home as well. Wall art, both. And the architect that, uh, is handling those projects has asked me to do the exterior of an, uh, an infinity pool for mm -hmm. him. So it'll, the piece will be a four panel series and it'll be overall eight feet tall by uh, 14 feet wide. So this transition off the road, was that because your other revenue streams are strong enough that you don't need to have that any longer as a means of exposing your work to the public? It, it didn't actually start that way. I really love the shows, but they're tiring. Yeah. I mean, it's grueling to set up and tear down and weather such a factor. And when I began, you know, 17, 18, 19 years ago, uh, there were a lot of great shows. And I, it felt like the market was becoming saturated, mm -hmm. that there were there were too many shows especially in certain regions like you talked about yeah. Chicago and you know they do go on pretty much every weekend and if you are making one of a kind work that is memorable you know that's great I mean, that might make you feel a little bit bulletproof but if the act of having an art show every weekend people do become kind of numb to the newness of it. There's no sense of urgency to get to the show. They're like, I'll just catch the one next weekend or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that was exactly what I ran into. And the other thing was I found this sort of a, a thing that's not really acknowledged is that 
People are getting their art fixed merely walking shows. Mm -hmm. They spend their entire summer going to shows, you know, 10, 12, 13 shows a summer. And it satisfies their art fix. Mm -hmm. So they don't end up needing to buy something. They don't need anything to take home with them because they, they consider it a social outing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I I mean, I, I, that's a big factor. The other thing is, I prefer the inside in, interior shows. And I, I remember the first ones I did were the ones at uh, one of a kind in Chicago. Right. Uh, but that became so large. There were so many artists that it, it made it tough to stand out. There was a time I had four booths there and people didn't find me. So that it, it, I saw the writing on the wall in terms of satur- market saturation. Mm-hmm. So I, I, when I said earlier that I started feeding my exit strategy, I would still be doing shows if they were dependable, at least for my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I'm, I'm really happy to hear that a lot of artists are still having great shows. It concerns me that with the weather changing as it is may make it tough. So it is I'm, I'm hoping that there's a, yeah, I'm hoping that there'll, there'll be a, an interior circuit, a, a smaller, and I've talked to other artists about uh, creating one, a circuit of, of uh, high-end shows either be through hotels or other venues that support artists that are full-time artists and take it as a career, as opposed to what the the circuit refers to pejoratively as weekend warriors, people that pop out for a little while and, and fill the tent and are happy to make $1,200. I'm, I'm with you on that because I have wondered over the past couple of years with the weather events that have been going on. It's why is it that, some of these indoor high-end craft and fine art shows seem to be going by the wayside. It's like we can't get the attendance, why we can't get people indoors. There's not the same kind of energy for them because it seems to make more sense for the artist, for the people shopping the show uh, to come get high-end work. How do we get to that next point where people are willing to you know what I mean? Paid admission and walk into a convention center or hotel and and shop a, an art show. I think it's it's a case of not being hand marketed and handled properly. The prices of I did sofa and that which is a very it's like a version of Art Basel mm-hmm. and it was okay it was okay but the prices are too high. I feel for in terms of uh, being an artist and showing there, the, and it's and that's it a, a big issue for it. And the others are, they're not necessarily marketed well. I think it's, it's a, it's an idea whose time is long, has come long ago and, and is just, has not been produced properly. Yeah, I think that there is a space where this will happen. It's just a, a question of someone doing a better job at it. Yeah. Maybe the energy that we're getting from the outdoor shows is really the the spectacle of the, let's say, 75% of the people walking the show just coming to do, like what you said, get their art fix. And then the, the smaller percentage of people are there to buy. If you pull that 75% out and put the, put the 25% of people walking through the show in an indoor venue, it feels slow and it just doesn't have the enthusiasm that all these bodies walking around outside and in the sun are, are like. Well, yes, though that 25% in a smaller venue can feel the same. It's a volume. It's, it's boutique shows. It's a boutique, you know, yeah. All, all hotels are going, even the large hotels are going for the boutique feel. Mm-hmm. They don't, they, they, they're not just place to warehouse and sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
perhaps instead of having 20,000 people visit the show, maybe just 3,000 serious buyers mm-hmm. and and having that work. And and, and even in terms of uh, for pay shows, I I find that that often you know, some artists are not in favor of, of a gate at a show. And I think that that is a, a, a that's a tricky dance to, to avoid because it does pre-qualify people into a degree if if they're willing to if they're serious buyers are not just going there to walk their dog and and to chat yeah um so that so that's a tricky one in fact i i had suggested to a a show uh that i'll leave, leave nameless because because they didn't didn't take me up on it but why not have a gate fee say you had a 20 dollar gate fee which sounds like a lot mm-hmm. but with that gate fee came a coupon or, or a chit that would allow you to get that much off of your first purchase of over a thousand dollars or five hundred dollars, what have you? Mm-hmm. Um, then people would walk through the gate with it, with a with a mindset to make their twenty dollars back uh, of actually purchasing. I mean, it's, it's counterintuitive that you'd spend it's brilliant spend five hundred or a thousand dollars to to get your twenty back. But your your human nature is your your outlook is one of I'm going to purchase something, right? And and I would love to have a stack of of coupons or, or, or tickets that depending on the size of the price yeah. of the product, I, I don't, I wouldn't care what it is. If, if it takes me $5,000 to make $40,000, I'm happy. Mm. You know, it would be a totally different vibe as to who shows up. And then they would, the people wouldn't feel like they were milked mm-hmm. and they would have the choice to not buy or, or buy, but their inclination would be to purchase. All these projects you're talking about, they sound like it would take a a huge team of people to work for you to do this. What kind of an operation are you running or how many people are you Um, working for you? Well, well, right now it's, it's, I'm the operation. And when I, (laughs) when I had uh, my, when I had a studio in Illinois, it was 8,000 square feet. And I had, I was working with a full-time assistant who was wonderful. He was a welder, built the furniture for my tables and Mm. drove to shows and, and would set up my booth and that sort of thing. But now I've I've um, scaled back, and you know my studio is about twelve hundred square feet, so it's a lot smaller than the eight thousand that I was working with. Mm. But um, I enjoy what I do, and I do it every day. And so far, it hasn't gotten me in trouble. That's great. You know, I'm still able to keep still able to keep up. But I've got contacts. I've got designers that I work with, and and showroom people, and and I've just incorporated a couple of new marketing people and branding people to to try and get one of the things i want to get involved in now is uh spin-offs like textiles and mm-hmm. and rugs and furniture and things like that so mm-hmm. it's uh it, it keeps me hopping and how did covid affect this year for you and your your business and your operations actually it was about three months when it first began when covid first hit that I, it it made me doubt and I took a part-time job and first time I'd worked for anyone else in 30 years. And that was interesting. Galleries soon came back and my clients who were staring at their walls and mm-hmm. because they were trapped inside. So it, it's actually been a great year for me. It's been, I'd say it's been as good a year as it has been in 10 years. Oh, I'm so happy. Yeah. It's, that uh, is really good news. Yeah. It, it, you know, I, I think that it's a question of relationships I developed over the last two decades that is, is feeding my work now, the business relationships and, and, and friendships that I, and willingness to look elsewhere for things uh, mm. is it's, it's depends on how you see 
the world as to how the world sees you. I'm really inspired by your all-around scope of how you work with getting to know who you're designing for, with your vision for big projects and making them come into reality, having the multi-revenue streams. I mean, you're, you're doing a lot of things right. I hope to take a fraction of some of the example that you've been talking about here. Well, please, anytime call. I mean, I, I love talking about the business of the business. And it's funny, I gave a lecture at uh, University of Wisconsin Whitewater and being a self-taught artist, because I had a bunch of students in my studio to, to work with and they asked me to come up. They gave me a show in, at the university and they they purchased some work and they asked me to speak. And I, I didn't know what I was going to talk about. I'd already lectured in other areas, but I, I walked in and I said, your professor is going to tell you, don't worry about the money but I respectfully disagree. Mm -hmm. You have to live indoors. You have to eat. You have to buy supplies. All you need to know if you want to be a chef, a carpenter, or an artist is one thing. And that is that ramen noodles taste better as a choice. <laughs> so struggle if you must, but do not think the struggle makes you brilliant. Wow. It just makes you hungry. Wow. <laughs> one of the, the phrases I had when I had people working with me, I would say, do you know when you see a movie and you get that inspiring feeling, you get the shivers, the tingles. And I'd say, you know, you want, when you're selling something, be it a product or a service, you want to give people at some point that good feeling that, that resonates within them where they get the shivers, because then they want to replicate that. They associate you with feeling good, with laughter or with emotional support or, or anything like that. If you, when, when someone calls to talk to you about art, and you drift into what's going on in their families or what's going on in the world, and you make it not all about a sale, that's part of the connection that you make. So when you walk into their house and they say, you know, everyone talks about your work, they want to replicate that feeling when someone else comes in the house. So they want another piece. They connect you with the joy that your work gives them. And so the idea is to spread joy through your art and, and appreciation. So as long as you do that, then, then you can sleep well at night. So people living with your work, they're not buying an object. They're not buying something that matches something else. They really are living with you. They're living with your inspiration and your story and how you made them feel. So that whole opportunity of getting to know your collector, it isn't a sales tactic. It's the connection because the connection is what they're buying from us. They're obviously getting your beautiful work and all of that too. That's part of it, but it is something deeper. Very much deeper. And, and you, I imagine you might've gone through this as well. You'll, you'll walk a show and you see someone's work as you're really drawn to, then you speak to them and all of a sudden the work isn't quite as attractive. Yeah. You know, you, 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 you really have to have to factor that in. In fact, even when I'm looking at a gallery that I might want to have carry my work or hope to have it carry my work, mm -hmm. if, if someone steps up and speaks to me as friendly and they don't know me from Adam, but they they engage, then it's a, then it's a gallery I'd, uh, I'd love to have my work in because I know that's how they're going to speak to people that are interested in my work. Mm -hmm. If someone just sits in the back and nods or doesn't look up from their computer, that's how they're going to treat the clients. And that's not the relationship that I want with my clients, even if it's through someone else. Yeah. They're thinking of the work as a commodity and not, right. and not as building relationships, even as the kind of the middleman of the connecting the artist with the owner. Um, if that, if they have a similar value set as you, then you're on board. You want to work with them. That's, that's who you would want to work with. 
truly. And and the the idea of artist rep, it's it's not just rep, it's your representative. Mm-hmm. If it's representing you, then it should embody you. Eric, this has been great. Lots to think about. We all miss you out on the road here, but uh, it's great to see that you're doing awesome things. Well, well, thanks so much, Douglas. And in fact, uh, I, I miss the road as well. So as soon as the world stabilizes a little bit more and I get some breathing room, I, I that's the thing that's irreplaceable about the circuit is is the people, the, uh, the, the customers, the clients, the patrons. That's one thing. But fellow artists are, 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 some, are family. Yeah. You know? And then that that's something that that you can't replace. So I look forward to seeing you. I'll, I'll track your schedule. And if ever we're overlapping, I'll definitely stop by. That's great. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much, Eric. Absolutely. A pleasure. Bye now. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Douglas, that was a great talk. Eric talks about satisfying your art fix with shows. And man, that that satisfied my art fix talk. That was killer. <laughs> thanks. I appreciate it. I had a good time talking to him. How can you not? I mean, it's just, I feel like he's just, he's just always been the guy, you know? I mean, he's always been one of my art show heroes. So it it was really gratifying to be able to sit down and listen. He's so generous. You know, he's just, he can give you some information, some advice, tell you what's going on with him. I like the part where he says that he reached a point in his career where he was dealing with do you withhold do you operate from scarcity or do you share and when he shares it's like from a very generous place yeah that that theme has come up again and again it came up with chris dahlquist it came up with eric and i bought into that uh over the weekend last weekend before at cherry creek this guy came into my booth and he was talking about what he wanted and what he wanted me to do and he was really excited about my work and the more he talked the more i realized that he wasn't talking about me he was talking about this like 60s style and the madman and the kind of the this kind of designer and i'm like geez have you walked around the corner and seen Signe and Kenna because the Grushchevinkos are doing what you're talking about without me having to try. I was like, you know what? And so I walked into their booth and and pointed it out. I was like, I I 100% want to do something for you, but these guys are already doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And so he went in there and he he saw them that day. And then he came back the next day and I saw the same client again. And he was coming down the street. Dude actually gave me a huge hug. Oh, he was like, great. he was like, thank you so much. I love this. And I ended up buying this thing and it wasn't what I'd imagined immediately. But then when I thought about it, I slept on it. And so he bought the piece and it's like, everybody wins uh-huh. with that. You know, I'm going to get that guy later. He's going to be happy with the show. So let's help each other people. Let's get out there and be kind and, and share the art. How many different times have you sold a piece, dropped it off at a client's house and seen somebody that you admire in the house already. So so let's help each other. I tell you, I had an experience in Fort Worth. I show up, we're installing one of our big pieces, and I look around and it is full of art show artists work there. I love the company we keep. It's true, Douglas. It makes you feel good. Man, Eric talked about all sorts of different things and we all have our different approaches. He talked about designers and and designers killing a sale just because they feel like they have to have their opinion. But what I like to say when the designer gets involved is like, tell your, your designer that you have found an artist that you would like them to work around. Okay. You know, that works. Another one. I try to hype up the client when they're leaving and be like, don't forget the designer works for you. It's their job to design around your taste. And they kind of are like, yeah, Mm -hmm, that's right. They mm -hmm, work for us. mm -hmm. 
you know? Totally. Like when he says, let's put it in perspective. Who pays the mortgage? Right. Who's the boss here? Yeah. They're designing for you. You're hiring them and they are to give you what uh, you're looking for and what you will be inspired by and enthused by every day you wake up and look at it. They work for you, baby. Another thing that I wanted to mention before we go, I love the mix of art and music. And we've talked about that several times. And that's how I kind of see things. Jackson Brown talking about, won't you stay a little bit longer in, in the show and breaking down and setting up the next thing? It's it's There's a common thread with, with music and artwork. You know, what Eric was talking about, about space in between, you know, the negative space within the work. I've heard that uh, as a quote from Prince and Miles Davis and Tom Petty about the hook of the song or the funk of the song being about the notes in between and not just being about the 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 finished piece. When he brought up the music and music being a theme of his transitions and and the theme of his emotion and his feelings, I thought to myself this is going to connect with Will. I did think of you right away when you said that. <laughs> he talks, it's funny because he talks about getting the shivers. And I got the shivers several times during the talk. He's crazy inspiring for me. And he's just the, the type of guy that makes me want to hit the street running or get in the studio and just start cranking out work. So thanks for that talk. Yeah. Well, this has been a great week. And uh, next time I see you, Will, we're both going to be another year older. <laughs> that's true happy birthday to you my friend uh oddly enough like we've talked many times we did not know each other but we share a birthday practically well it is strange and so we got to working on this project and as we got to know each other you know at first it was like oh we're the same age born in the same year then we find out we're we're born a day apart from yeah, each other less than 24 hours apart so uh happy birthday my fellow libra i don't know if anyone else believes in the old astrology thing out there but i wonder if that somehow makes us related in the stars being born so close together <laughs> know about that but <laughs> if it's true if we're both libas let's keep this thing with the yen and the yang That's right all right have a great week my friend we'll see you on the road all right take care This podcast is brought to you by the National Association of Independent Artists. The website is naiaartists.org. Also sponsored by Zapplication. That's zapplication.org. And while you're at it, check out Will's website at willarmstrongart.com and my website at sigwithglass.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to be notified when we release new episodes. 